Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Today we're starting a short series on the church from the book of Acts. And as we do, we're going to see the early church's life, growth, and history. And I hope as we see the early church's life, growth, and history, we'll get an appreciation about how the risen Lord built his church in the first century in Jerusalem so that we can appreciate how he's continuing to build his church here and now in the 21st century here in Ottawa. I also hope we'll see some truths that help us to make sense of what God is doing in our church today. So to start, let's consider what the church is and what it does. As a non-technical, non-textbook definition, we might say that the church is God's worshiping people united to Jesus by faith, baptized and maturing in love by obeying God's word, making disciples, and witnessing to the watching world that Jesus is Lord in the power of the Holy Spirit. It's a non-technical definition. You might recall that the Lord Jesus told the early church at the end of the Gospel of Luke that it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. He then said, you are witnesses of these things and behold I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power, mark that, power from on high. Jesus spoke these words to his first followers, to his disciples, who would later be called the apostles. These were the apostles' marching orders for how Christ would build his church back then. And they're still the church's marching orders for how he builds his church today. Now, when we turn to the Acts of the Apostles, uh, we pick up where Luke 24 left off. Acts is part two of Luke's New Testament writings. He wrote the Gospel according to Luke, and he wrote the Acts. And here we meet the Apostles carrying out the mission that Jesus gave them at the end of Luke. So if you turn with me to Acts chapter 1, You're going to see where Luke 24 left off. Acts chapter 1 picks up. It's on page 909 of the Bibles in front of you. And as we look at Acts chapter 1, we're just going to get a a, a brief understanding of why Luke wrote his book as he says it. He says in Acts chapter 1, verse 1, In the first book, O Theophilus, referring to the gospel according to Luke, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father. So, Luke is recording what Jesus was doing through the apostles who he empowered with the Holy Spirit and commanded to go as witnesses into the world to tell the nations about Jesus. Simply put, they were to speak what they saw and heard 
in Jesus. That was their job, these apostles. They, but before they went to their job, their work, they needed to wait to be empowered by the Holy Spirit. And as we continue in chapter 1 of Acts, you see that in verse 8, uh, we hear this. Jesus says in Acts 1.8, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So while Luke's gospel shows us what the Lord Jesus began to do and teach, including his life, death, and resurrection, Acts shows us what he's still doing through his apostles who were commissioned and filled with the Holy Spirit to go and be witnesses to the nations. And Acts chapter 1 verse 8 provides the outline and shape that Luke takes in the whole book of Acts. He shows us in chapters 1 to 2 how the Holy Spirit empowered the early church for their work as witnesses. In chapters 3 to 7, we see the church's ministry as witnesses in Jerusalem. In chapters 8 through 12, we see how the church witnesses bringing the gospel beyond Jerusalem throughout Judea and Samaria. And then in chapters 13 to 28, we see how the church brings the gospel witnessing to the nations to the end of the earth. Now, that's the overview of what uh, Luke is doing in the book of Acts. But let's get a running start on our text today by looking at chapter 2 for a moment. So if you're in there in the Bible, just flip over to chapter 2 of the book of Acts. Now, what you need to know is that Acts chapter 2 is a big deal in the Bible. It's a big deal in the New Testament. It's the day of Pentecost, and many things happen on this day. It's the day that Jesus fulfills his promise to empower these apostles with the Holy Spirit. And he does this. Then, after he empowers them to be witness, uh, witnesses, he fills them with the Holy Spirit. And because they're filled with the Holy Spirit, they start witnessing and telling people. Peter stands up, preaches a sermon that cuts to the quick, and uh, 3,000 people repent and believe in Jesus. Then they get baptized. The church grows. What's happening here in the Second chapter of Acts, Jesus is building his church. But in addition to the numerical growth that's happening and the spiritual renewal that's happening, we also see the church growing closer as a community as they care for one another. Now look closely at Acts chapter 2, the very end of it, verses 42 to 47. We see the church's relational rhythm in their life. It says this, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles, and all who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. So God's Spirit had brought about a renewal and, it had, and the Holy Spirit had created a people, a people of 
prayer and the word. A people of generosity and joyful praise. And as it says, the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. A saved people. A people that were believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now this is the climate and the context for today's text. Life in the church is clipping along. The word is taking root in the community and people are being saved and are abounding in selfless love for one another. All is well up to this point in chapter 2 of Acts. But as we keep reading, we're forced into reality. As scripture shows us often, or all the time, scripture shows us what real life looks like when Christ builds his church. And what we see in Acts is that though there may be temporary seasons of peace and renewal and a refreshing of the Holy Spirit, joy in the life of the church, there's also an enemy lurking just around the corner. The devil is constantly kicking and screaming when the church is flourishing in the world. And this is what we see as we turn the page to Acts chapter 3. So as you get to chapter 3, you're going to see that Satan is counterattacking the church's momentum from Pentecost. Just as the word of God is gaining momentum and the people of God are speaking and witnessing to the people, uh, there's a real, real good reception from people as the apostles witness, then the devil retaliates. In chapters 3 to 7, you see his tactics taking many forms, from the decisions of the religious power brokers in the temple who try to keep the apostles quiet. That happens in Acts chapter 3 and 4. We're going to look at that in this series. Then it goes to the compromised morality in the life of the church in chapter 5. Then to uh, to distracting the apostles from their main duty of prayer and preaching the word in chapter 6. Then to the violent and maybe climactic point in chapter 7 where we see the first Christian martyr, another word for witness, uh, martyr Stephen gets stoned to death for witnessing, for preaching, and the people are upset at what he said. The church is advancing in the power of the Spirit, witnessing boldly, yet the devil is trying to ruin it at every turn. So that's the setting of today's text. And that's the setting of church ministry, isn't it? And I think it's a good reminder for us today as we think of how our own church is growing. We must remember that this is and always will be the context for our ministry as a church We are always working between the devil's attacks and counterattacks and God's kingdom breaking through. But what I hope to show you in this series is that the early church and the church through the centuries, as you can uh, see in church history, the church has always been accompanied by her Lord while Satan attacks, during Satan's attacks. He has not forsaken them even when the enemy tries to attack the church. So just because troubles come for us as a church or as individual Christians doesn't mean God leaves us. Peter says the opposite is true in his first first epistle to some believers who suffered for being Christians. And I think what he says to individual Christians can also apply to the church. He says in 1 Peter 4, verse 14, If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. Because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Today we're going to see that through, that though the church may suffer 
and even be persecuted at times, God doesn't withdraw from her. Rather, he empowers her to witness and builds his church even during the attacks. Today we'll see that Christ builds his church by empowering us to speak the gospel in the face of the devil's attacks. Christ builds his church by empowering us to speak the gospel in the face of the devil's attacks. And we'll follow three movements in the text, a sign, a speech, and a response. But first, let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we want to ask that your spirit would convict us of the ways in which we are putting our light under a lampstand or not being the lights that you've called us to be and the salt in this world. And I pray that you'd empower us by your spirit with a new and fresh sense that we are given a mission to go and that as a church we would continue to witness and that you'd continue to bring the increase day by day. And Lord, that uh, the church in Ottawa church throughout the world would continue to increase in its boldness to witness in the face of the devil's attacks. We pray that you'd guide us by your spirit today in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we've seen, the context of our text is that God is bringing about spiritual renewal in his church. Starting in verse 1, we see that Christ builds his church by empowering us to speak the gospel to the weak and poor. As Chapter 2, verse 43 says, Many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And chapter 3 shows us the first sign in Acts. It starts as the apostles John and Peter go to a prayer meeting. As we've seen, the apostles were in the habit of, of praying daily and they attended the temple. But on the way to prayer this day, they saw someone in trouble. And they respond in a surprising way. Look at verses 1 to 5. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. And a man lame from birth was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the beautiful gate to ask alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, Look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. So the apostles see a man with a significant problem. And I want you to picture the crippled man. What do we know about this man? He was crippled from birth, it says. And chapter 4 sheds more light, telling us that he was more than 40 years old. So he's lived his entire life as a crippled person. And what's more, he's a beggar. Every day he gets positioned at this beautiful gate known as the Nicanor Gate to beg. This gate was between the court of the Gentiles and the temple proper. And this is relevant information because it tells us not only that this man is helpless, poor, and weak, it also tells us that he's an outsider in the temple. His disability kept him from going into the temple. But when, when he sees Peter and John, he proceeds with his begging and asks them for alms, which were gifts for the poor or the sick to relieve their suffering. And the apostles see him and tell him to look at them. 
And I'm not sure exactly why they did this. Maybe to show him respect, maybe because he felt shame or he was fatigued. I don't exactly know why, but the man made eye contact with him, with these apostles. And then fixing his attention on them, he's expecting to get what he asked for. However, Peter wouldn't give him what he asked for. Instead, he'd give him something better. And his whole life was about to change. Let's look at verses 6 to 10, see what happens. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God. And recognizing him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple, asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. So Peter didn't have alms, not silver, not gold to give this man. But he did have something to give. He had Jesus and his spirit's power filling him. So he brings that power in the name of Jesus and tells him to walk. Then he lent him a hand, and the crippled man's feet and ankles were immediately made strong. This is a supernatural work of God. The man leaps up and starts walking with them into the temple, praising God, and I think leaping for joy. Jesus worked a miracle for this man on this day. He was healed in Jesus' name. Yes, and amen, and we say, that's exciting. Now, in the scripture, the name of someone refers to the very person himself. So Jesus' name is not a magic formula used here for healing this person, but it's the power and presence of Jesus working there in that moment to heal this man. And I think the healing points to what Isaiah 35 says. If you look with me at Isaiah 35, verses 30, uh, 3 to 6, it says this. Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf, deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. Now, while we were reading Acts chapter 3 together. Who were you identifying with? Who were you relating to? Were you identifying with the crippled man? The people in the temple? Or with the apostles? Who do you relate to in this story? Do you see yourself in the crippled man? Do you realize that his external poverty and weakness is a picture of our spiritual poverty and weakness? Here's what I mean. What was true of him physically and socially is also true of us Christians spiritually, isn't it? We were weak, poor, outsiders, estranged from the living God. Spiritually, we were dead in our trespasses and sins. Yet like this man, Jesus changed things for us from top to bottom, didn't he? Jesus enriched us and healed us from our sinful diseases and welcomed us right in. We are truly the broken who've experienced healing, aren't we? We are the weak who Jesus makes strong. And we are the outsiders who've been given access and a name in the family of God. Do you realize that all of mankind's uh, 
uh, all of mankind is spiritually crippled, including you and including me. And only Jesus can bring a lasting cure for our deep problems. If you haven't seen yourself in the crippled man yet, look closer. Take some more time. And if you see yourself in the crippled man, do you remember when his power changed your whole life? Now back to the scene in Acts. What becomes so clear about his healing is that it can't be denied by those present. Whether they're believers or not, people cannot refute that this man has been made whole. They're filled with wonder at what the Lord has done for him. But what we're going to see next is that the healing was a platform for the gospel, not the point of the gospel. I get this from what Peter does next. He shows us that Christ builds his church by empowering us to speak the gospel to the powerful. Look at verse 11 and 12. While he clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people, men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety, we have made him walk? So Peter starts this sermon by moving the people's attention away from himself and the sign of the healing toward Christ. He's moving them away from the sign towards the Savior. He says, look people, you see what happened. Don't be enamored with me or John as though we did this in our own godliness or strength. He basically says, don't put us on a pedestal. Jesus is the hero here, not us. Then he continues by telling us whose strength made this man whole. In verses 13 to 16. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of your fathers, of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. Do you catch the boldness in Peter right now? This is, he's talking to the authorities here. He's talking to the people in the temple. And he's saying these things, but he's definitely making a point. He moves from a healing to preaching the gospel. And Peter's reaction to this miracle was to use it as a platform, not for himself, but for Jesus. He shows them that this healing pointed to a deeper healing that Jesus brings through salvation. He refers to Jesus as the holy and righteous one, terms used of the Messiah. And he moves very quickly to telling this group of people that the true God who made covenant with their fathers sent and glorified Jesus. Jesus was the anointed one their scriptures pointed to. Jesus was the author of life whom they killed and denied in the presence of Pilate, asking for Barabbas to be released instead of him. And this group of religious elites in Jerusalem were responsible for killing the author of life. An ironic twist of words there, or putting of words there. But God's plans were not thwarted by their evil plans. Rather, he accomplished his plans through their evil plans. He raised Jesus from the dead. Then he finishes this section by telling them who it was that healed this man. It was this Jesus who they denied and crucified. The irony is palpable. The Jesus whom they killed is alive 
And he is working and is responsible for healing this man. Meaning, though they cannot see Jesus, he is still living and working, especially in this sign through the Apostle Peter. And Peter is a witness to it all. In verse 16, he says, And his name, verse 15, To this we are witnesses, and his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know, and the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. So it's not clear from the wording of this verse if it was Peter and John's faith or the crippled man's faith that made this man whole. But the point is that Jesus worked either through the man's faith or through the apostles' faith, or both, to strengthen and heal this man. It was Jesus' power working to bring about this healing. Then Peter spells it out for the religious crowd through many references. He says, Jesus is the Messiah your Hebrew scriptures promised. And though you rejected him, you can actually turn back to him now. Watch how he puts it in verse 17. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. Okay, what's Peter doing here? Mentioning ignorance. Little backstory here. So Peter's going to talk to them about their ignorance and an open door in front of them. Here it would uh, help us to recall that the Bible speaks about both intentional and unintentional sin. Meaning there's a difference between sinning in ignorance and sinning with a high hand of defiance. You can look it up in Numbers chapter 15 if you want. But scripture uh, is clear that sinning in ignorance and sinning with a high hand are still sin. Okay, they're both sin, they both need to be repented of, they both need to be atoned for and forgiven, both are sin. Unintentional and intentional are sin. So what's the point here? Well, Peter's speaking to an audience and he tells them that they rejected Jesus because they were ignorant. They did not intend, they didn't understand who Jesus was, They they didn't understand who he was when he was right in front of them. But this didn't take away their responsibility to believe and repent, to repent and believe in him. So Peter makes this clear. They're not off the hook because they were ignorant. They're not off the hook because they didn't know. Rather, they're still responsible to repent of their sin, even if it was done in ignorance. But don't miss the goodness of God in this offer. God was gracious to this crowd, giving them an opportunity to repent. Though they denied and signed off on the crucifixion of Christ, they were guilty of ignoring Jesus. Peter's saying, I know you didn't recognize Jesus as the Messiah then, but now is your chance. Open your eyes. You were wrong about him then. You acted in ignorance then. Yes, that's true. But even this can and must be forgiven. Even though you were complicit in his crucifixion, he's still saving those who turn to him. Even if you were the one shouting, crucify him, you too can be saved by him. He is the only savior. So he says in verse 18, but what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, 
that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. So Peter tells them to repent, to turn back to God, since they've turned away from God. But they have an opportunity, an open door to come back today. He tells them, what, when, when they did this, their sins, when they do this, their sins will be blotted out, a ref- reference to forgiveness. The, the slight will be cleared. And we're reminded that these words recall what we already saw in Luke 24 that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations. So the reference is that repentance, so that, sorry, the point is that repentance leads to forgiveness. But there are more benefits of repentance as well in verse 20. It says that they'd be refreshed from the presence of the Lord. The Lord himself would refresh them, likely referring to the assurance we experience when we receive forgiveness. Do you remember the assurance? In fact, do you remember the last time you confessed your sins to the Lord and were refreshed by the forgiveness of his sins? There's an assurance that we have that when we repent and we confess our sins, that the Lord refreshes us. The Lord himself refreshes us. And they receive that refreshment themselves. And they also receive the promises of the worldwide restoration that God promised through the prophets of old and of which uh, referred to his second coming, his return. Now, what Peter preached then, we should take to heart now, shouldn't we? Because it's still true today. The promises of forgiveness, refreshment, and restoration are held out today. They come through turning and trusting in Jesus who died, rose again, and is coming back. All these blessings and more are yours, are mine, by faith in Him. So have you lived in ignorance of Jesus your whole life? Maybe up until today. You didn't know that he is the savior of the world. That he is the only savior and that you need him. You didn't realize how great your sin was. Maybe you're guilty of intentional or unintentionally sinning against him. He is the only savior that your heart needs. Maybe you've been ignoring or turning away from him in your heart, not thinking that you need him. Well, today is a good day to turn around and receive forgiveness and renewal from him. He's still alive. He's still saving. He's still building his church. Have you turned to him? Have you turned back? Now, Peter continues to preach, taking them to the familiar truths that these Jewish people would have learned from birth. He's providing, as he's doing so, he's providing an explicitly Christ centered take on these passages. He starts by showing them that Jesus' words were to be obeyed because he was the prophet Moses referred to in Deuteronomy 18. And he also warns them that those who ignore and disobey Christ's words will perish or be destroyed from the people, as it refers to. Look at verse 22. Moses said, The Lord will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. 
You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you, and it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people, cut off from the covenant promises of God. So in addition to referring to Moses here, Peter is also saying that all the prophets since Samuel and those after him spoke of Jesus in similar ways. Verse 24. And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaim these days, You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, And in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Samuel is esteemed as a first prophet, and he's saying constantly in this sermon that Jesus is what it was pointing to. Scriptures is talking about Jesus. In this final part of the sermon, we see Peter explicitly showing this Jewish audience that in the temple that God raised up Jesus to be a blessing to them. Showing them that the Abrahamic covenant was ultimately pointing to Jesus. Paul will state this later in Galatians 3. He says that the offspring of Abraham was the Christ. In Galatians 3.16, it says, Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. So the point is that these Jewish people, though they rejected Christ, have an open door through this sermon to receive the promises of the covenant through faith in him. The promise is that those who consciously turn to Jesus become sons of God through Christ's covenant faithfulness. And don't miss verse 26, which says, God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. Now they were commanded to turn, and now we're told that the Lord himself turned them from their wickedness. We're reminded here that if we turn from our wickedness towards the Lord, we only did so because he granted us the spiritual power to do so, right? In other words, everything we have is a gift, including faith and repentance. If you repented and believed in Jesus, God opened your heart to do so. Now, we've covered the sign. We've covered the speech. Now it's time to consider the people's response before you all fall asleep on me. Here we see what we often see in Acts, that there's a mixed response. You see this constantly after sermons in Acts. There's a mixed response with the people. And here we see that Christ builds his church by empowering us to speak the gospel in the face of problems. Look at verse 1 of chapter 4. And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. All right, so Peter's been preaching, but now there's an interruption. The priests, the temple captain, and the Sadducee, uh, the Sadducees come upon them. The point is that the powerful people are fed up. So they, they mob the apostles, and the Sadducees are an interesting group of people because they didn't believe in the resurrection. So it's probable that the constant references to the resurrection of Christ really caused them to be greatly annoyed, these Sadducees. 
But they responded to the preaching by trying to shut the apostles up using their power to lock them up. But as we're reminded in verse 4, the word of God is not locked up. Look what it says. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. Okay. So the tension is building. The apostles are in some hot water. They're in trouble. The satanic plot thickens. Opposition is moving in. But don't miss what Jesus is doing. Because Jesus is building his church, isn't he? The church was still growing. People were believing. Now the number has come to about 5,000 men. So 5,000 men are being counted. In addition, you have believing women and children. So the church is flourishing. Even during the attack from the higher-ups. It might look one way from one vantage point. But the church is growing through this Persecution, this interruption, this incarceration. So people heard the sermon. People are believing in Christ through it. Growth is taking place in the environment of social, relational, and spiritual conflict. God is building his church. In fact, as you keep reading in Acts, the church keeps witnessing and growing. And as you get to the chapter 6, uh, verse 7, it says this. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Isn't that a twist of irony? The priests became obedient to the faith. Priests were causing problems for the church here. What's going on? God is building his church. I wonder how many of the priests and the Sadducees came to Christ. And what about the people who arrested the apostles? Did they later come to faith in him? Jesus has promised to build his church. He has promised to stick with us as we witness in this world. The gates of hell will not prevail against the church or its strong savior. So church, even while we're experiencing good days right now, Let's not get sidetracked from the mission. Let's expect that the devil will attack us. And let's keep the pedal to the metal when it comes to our witnessing. This is how Christ built his church. One believer at a time. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we do ask for your spirit's refreshment in our hearts. We get excited when we think about what you have done in this church and in the early church in Jerusalem. First century, Lord, you were doing amazing things, but it didn't mean it was easy. It did mean that there was persecution. It did mean that there was people targeting the apostles as they preached, but they kept on witnessing because they were empowered by your Spirit. So please, I pray, fill us as individuals with your Spirit today. May we be encouraged to tell others about Jesus. And may you put people in our path this week that we could tell the good news that no, we don't have silver and gold, but we do have Jesus and we can share him with them, telling of his life, death, resurrection, and return. Pray this in Jesus' name.